Hey everyone, Jim and Steve are out of town, so Zach and I are going to tackle this one on our own. My mic wasn't working, so the sound isn't great. You'll get over it. Fair warning, there may be some strong language. Enjoy the show! everyone, welcome to Film Fight, a podcast where we take two movies with a similar plot or story and see which one did it better. Sometimes uh, with permission and sometimes not, Amber. <laughs> Variety of, of films. Uh, I'm Zach Bassetta, just so you know who's, who's talking at you. And I'm Amber Hollinger. And thanks for joining us on, on a, an episode that uh, was very educated. Well, the, the episode will be educational for the listeners. The movies are educational for me because I'm not a rom-com fella. Maybe we should tell the folks what our marquee matchup is for this particular episode. Mm-hmm. We have romantic comedy drama edition of Pretty Woman versus Made in Manhattan. And as I understand it, you have not seen either one of these films before. No, this is the first time that I'd seen Pretty Woman, which I think is more shocking than the fact that I haven't seen Made in Manhattan. It is more shocking. (laughs) I don't know how you missed that. It was like a rite of passage growing up in the 90s. Yeah, it's interesting just because it's a movie I've always been aware of. And I mean, I love movies, obviously, but for whatever reason, it's just always escaped my radar. Well, let's get into it then. Let's talk about it. Pretty Woman, directed by Gary Marshall. Mm -hmm. He's directed so many films, including Beaches and Exit to Eden, Overboard, The Princess Diaries, Runaway Bride, New Year's Eve. It stars Richard Gere, Julia Roberts, Ralph Bellamy. It was released in 1990, and it was written by J.F. Lawton. Yeah, who just really quickly, if you look at the other stuff that he's written, I mean, he he wrote Under Siege 1 and 2, which is not (laughs) a romantic comedy. I mean, it's just interesting. I was shocked to see that the guy that wrote Pretty Woman had also written basically like action stuff otherwise. He has a really interesting background. Mm -hmm. Plot summary as found on IMDb for Pretty Woman. A man in a legal but hurtful business needs an escort for some social events and hires a beautiful prostitute he meets only to fall in love. That is what happens. All right, why don't you tell us about Made in Manhattan? Made in Manhattan, directed by Wayne Wayne, which is actually really interesting because I did a paper in film school over his first movie, Where is Wang? (laughs) Really? Yeah, I don't remember much about it, but it's basically, I feel like I'm maybe getting the name of the, but yeah. uh, What was the assignment? Well, we were given, it was so long ago. I'm I'm an old man, Amber. Um, I can't remember specifically, but we were given three films to choose from, including that one. That movie is about sort of losing, uh, Asian Americans losing their cultural identity. It's sort of a metaphor, like they're looking for this cabbie named Chan or or whatever the the character's name is. But it's a metaphor of them kind of looking for their heritage, being American, but, but also from Japan. Anyway. It was very interesting. If I could remember it better, it would have been a more interesting story. But uh, was written by Made in Manhattan, written by, shockingly, John Hughes, under a pseudonym, which I don't know if that means he was embarrassed by it maybe, or what. Maybe it was a conflict of interest at the time for another project that he was on. Could be. Because he didn't actually write the screenplay. He's credited with the story. And, and uh, this... Yeah, joined by Kevin Wade. They get dual credit on Made in Manhattan. Yes. 
and uh, it was came out. It came out in 2002, which would be 12 years after Pretty Woman, starring Jennifer Lopez, Rafe. I believe it's pronounced Rafe Fines, and the erstwhile Natasha Richardson. Plot summary from IMDb: A senatorial candidate falls for a hotel maid, thinking she's a socialite, when he sees her trying on a wealthy woman's dress. I gotta say, I love these IMDb summaries because they're so wacky. Oh it God. is true; that is accurate, but it's a weird way of putting it. Why aren't we writing for IMDb? Do they pay? That's the real question. Well, you were talking a little bit before about J.F. Lawton. If we're going to talk about these writers and these scripts, he does have a really interesting background. Like you were saying, he's not really known for romantic comedies. He's got Under Siege, Under Siege Two, Dark Territory, The Hunted, Chain Reaction. Cannibal Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death. Yeah, which was apparently his first film. I based on that to. title alone, gotta see it. <laughs> I have to see it. <laughs> but yeah, he's, because um, we actually read a couple drafts of the Pretty Women script. And reading the earlier version, I can see that sort of style, I guess. it's I guess reading the earlier version of the script, it doesn't surprise me that he's done sort of, for lack of a better term, sleazier plots. <laughs> Or darker. What I sure. think most interesting about him was that Pretty Woman started out as a dark drama. At the time he was working in post-production, he hadn't really had a big break in Hollywood. And Touchstone Pictures purchased his script, 3000, and then changed it later to Pretty Woman. At some point I want to talk about the differences because it's interesting. For sure. So then let's see, Made in Manhattan, our buddy John Hughes, and then Kevin Wade. So John Hughes, most people will know who this is, writer, director, producer, written over 35 movies before his death, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, National Lampoon's Vacation, Home Alone. I mean, this guy, we grew up on these movies. Yeah, he's the king of... 80s teen film for sure and then like yeah he started doing because he's known for these very 80s uh, teen films like breakfast club ferris bueller's day off and then like in the 90s he started doing like i don't know how many people know that he wrote home alone you know which is not a teen film obviously and uh beethoven that movie about the dog he wrote so yeah he got into kind of like these more kid oriented or more family friendly i guess kind of films which is um, surprising. He started out writing for National Lampoon magazine, and that's how the movie National Lampoon's Vacation came about. It actually was him writing about one of his family vacations, and then he decided to embellish it. National Lampoon loved it. Uh, wow, that's why the first one's so good. <laughs> right. I think I knew that, but I keep forgetting it, and I'm amazed every time I relearn it. Well, it's, you know, because the rest of his body of work veers less adult, veers more, like you're saying, into the teen and family comedies. Mm -hmm. Good at angsty writing. Now, it doesn't say how he paired up with Kevin Wade. He wrote Meet Joe Black, Working Girl, Junior, but he mostly wrote Blue Bloods, which is a television show. But the it, the movies that he did write are kind of interesting because those were, well, maybe not Working Girl, but the other ones in the 90s were movies that were coming out when I was going to see anything at the theater. I saw Junior. Um, I didn't see Mr. Baseball, but I, I totally remember it because I was a big Tom Selleck fan. You were so, the yeah. audience. I guess so. I never saw Meet Joe Black either, but that was kind of, the only thing that turned me off of Meet Joe Black was that it came on two VHS tapes 
And I was like, ah, that's too much Brad Pitt. Besides Working Girl, I think Meet Joe Black is the only one I've seen. Yeah, Working Girl and Meet Joe Black. I mean, Working Girl was big. I mean, that's the one with- um, Melanie Griffith. Melanie Griffith. I keep getting it mixed up with Nine to Five. But yes, uh, Melanie Griffith and Harrison Ford, right? So his background started in writing plays. He wrote something called The Key Exchange, which was produced as an off-Broadway production. And then he kind of revised that idea for his Working Girl script. That's what earned him some nominations, Golden Globe Award for Best Screenplay. So he's, I don't know that John Hughes has actually won any awards as popular as his movies are. So yeah. Mr. Wade has a little leg up on him there. But I would argue that um, John Hughes films are more beloved. I don't think you'd even have to argue that. Yeah. Mm. No one's no one's having, you know, meet Joe Black parties. <laughs> I'd like to meet that person. I know, right? Let's dive into these scripts. Which do we begin with? Mm-hmm. Where, where do we start this rom-com uh, journey? Well, I, I can say that the origin of Made in Manhattan is loosely based on a true story. In 1959, Stephen Clark Rockefeller, son of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, married Anne-Marie Rasmussen, a maid who worked at his family's Manhattan Hotel. So I like that it's based on a true story. Shocked. <laughs> to find that out. Certainly the details of the, the courtship were different. I would hope to God that they are. Because yeah. that is a, that's a point of contention with the script that I definitely would like well, to discuss. You t- about the um the realism the, of it? The courtship of oh, the characters yes. in Made in Manhattan. On the surface, these movies are so similar. Pretty Women in Maine Manhattan yeah. are both women who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. They're both struggling to make ends meet. They're both feeling at the onset of their journeys that they have limited choices in life and they've accepted this as their reality. They both take place primarily in hotels. They both have a support system of close friends. They both end up having happy endings and finding love. They both have a, a helpful concierge character if I'm pronouncing that word correctly. How can I get one of those? I know, right? Well, the likelihood of them being either Bob Hoskins or Hector Elizondo, I can never pronounce his last name, (laughs) Elizondo. Great actor, but difficult last name. Um, But both of those characters, not only did they sort of serve the same purpose, but they, for me, were kind of one of, both highlights of their respective films. Although his sort of interest in Vivian doesn't make a lot of sense to me. He just sort of takes her under his wing. It's like, okay. I think I think part of the fabric of Pretty Woman is Vivian's likability. No matter where she is, she charms her audience. Yes, because I've always known, like, I'm fine with Julia Roberts, but people have always kind of like talked her up more than, than I kind of thought of her. I don't dislike her by any means, but seeing Pretty Woman, it's like, oh, I get it. You had your eyes opened? Yeah, I mean, like, she's very charming in the movie. And honestly, so is Richard Gere, oddly enough. These Um, are two, arguably, two of the most attractive people on the planet. She looks very good in the movie, absolutely. Can we talk about the the second script just for, I mean, just the... As far as how, what's his name? Edward is concerned. In the first script, like, he's an asshole, like, straight up. And, um... 
<laughs> What's interesting is that part of what makes him actually really likable in the film is that in a way, Richard Gere plays him kind of like a doof. Like there's that whole bit at the beginning where he kind of can't drive a stick shift, which is oddly endearing, but he's set up so much better in the final version. I'm so glad you found that second, the actual shooting script because I was like, wow, Gary Marshall fixed this movie. Like the, the second version, it's Vivian is a stoner. Like all she's interested, like she's like, I gotta get back and smoke some weed. Um, <laughs> you know, Edward isn't likable. Yeah, what did you think? Well, every, every movie has a process of skip, script evolution. Many, many drafts are written. Many notes are made to find the right tone. I am 100% glad that they ended up with the version that they did. It was really strategic. They were very smart. They took a step back and said, this is a, an unlikely relationship. This is a movie that was distributed by Disney. So there has to be some elements of wholesomeness, dare I say, for a prostitution love story. But they yeah. really ended up legitimizing this relationship in ways that, that felt very real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like going back and especially like kind of following along with the script, it's like the evolution of events does feel natural in, in that like not having seen the film, I'm like, well, how does this relationship evolve? Why, why do they stay in contact? And, and it, it worked. Here's my impressions just from the get-go, from just starting the movie and sitting down. With Pretty Woman, we meet Jason Alexander's character, Philip, before we meet Richard Gere's character, Edward. Usually you would put your main character first in the introduction, but this was really a clever way to set up the whole world, who Philip was in relationship to Edward. We got to know that Philip has kind of a fake schmoozy personality. And even with the brief introduction of Philip, who's and then meeting Edward, in the first 10 minutes, we know who Richard Gere is, that this is going to be a story about him, that he runs in very high society crowds, that he's terrible at keeping girlfriends because he's always puts business first. Mm -hmm. We meet Julie Roberts' character, character Vivian, and we know the story's going to be about her. And without a word of dialogue, we know that she doesn't have good luck with men because we see these pictures on the wall that the camera pans over and all the faces are kind of scratched out of it. We know without a word that she's poor, that she can't afford rent because on her way down the stairs, she hears the landlord asking for rent money. She goes in. The only place she can keep her money safe is hidden in a toilet. She pulls out a $1 bill we know she's absolutely broke and she hikes it down the fire escape we also meet her best friend in the first 10 minutes and then mm -hmm. our two main characters meet and our story starts that's pretty amazing like we're in our story with our main characters within the first 10 minutes of the film in a stark contrast of made in manhattan in made well, manhattan our main characters don't meet until over a half hour into the film yeah i noticed that too well you got to set up you got to set up how uh, dreary and hopeless uh, Jennifer Lopez's life is working at this high-end hotel with her friends. <laughs> I mean, like, I get what they're trying. She's a single mom. They got, they have to set up all the business with her freaking kid. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily work as well. Not, not so much for a, a love story because mm. I felt like it struggled a little bit in that beginning where I was a little confused on what kind of story I was watching because 
it, this is billed hands down as romantic comedy. If I'm reading the blurb in the newspaper and I sit down, I'm watching a mom and her son's relationship. And then I'm watching Marissa, Jennifer Lopez's character, Marissa, I'm watching all of her relationships in the hotel. Whether or not she wants to apply for the manager position. Yeah, so it's, I'm like, oh, well, maybe this is a movie about that. Maybe it's a movie about that we meet all these strangers in the hotel and then we meet all the hotel staff. And then the kid meets Ray Fiennes before Marissa does. Mm -hmm. I think they had more chemistry than Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) It's real convoluted, like just the whole process of of getting together. Whereas in Pretty Woman, uh, Edward needs directions. He's lost. He can't drive his car. And he, they even show him asking, you know, he asks a homeless person for directions. That doesn't work. He asked, I think maybe a, a map, person who just wants to sell him maps. That doesn't work. And so it makes sense that he's getting desperate and he finds this prostitute who is willing to give him directions. And like you said, it's within the first couple minutes of the film. It makes perfect sense. I think with um, in a love story, I just want to see more love. I want to see our main characters together. And they didn't really get one of the biggest differences between these two films and the way that they chose to tell their story is that we spend almost the entire movie with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts, with Edward and Vivian, whereas in Maiden Manhattan, Marissa and Christopher Marshall, they spend only moments of the film together. So it's hard, it's harder to feel invested in their relationship because it's not really built up that much. Yeah, I mean, like there's not a lot of, well, the chemistry isn't that great between them, but then just the obstacle of their love makes no sense. Whereas in Pretty Woman, it's like, okay, you understand like the class difference. She's a prostitute, she's a businessman, you know, they're not gonna fall in love generally. Like there's nothing in Made in Manhattan that's really keeping them apart other than Jennifer Lopez or Marissa not wanting to risk telling the truth or I don't know, it just seems silly. Well, <laughs> one of the things that I thought was interesting, it's clear that Made in Manhattan wants to shine a light on the prejudice of the lower class people in the city. They want to mm-hmm. sell you the idea that, hey, everybody looks like there's a lack of opportunities that they have, which is a really, really noble thought. However, they're kind of foiled by their own plan because not only does uh, Marissa's character have the opportunity to succeed, the management staff that holds her key to success is completely supportive of her. It, basically, she's the only person keeping her back. And then mm-hmm. I'm not sure that's the message per se that they wanted to send, or maybe it is, but it felt it felt a little bit confused that way. Well, I think because Pretty Woman has an antagonist that has Jason Alexander, the, the lawyer character. And of course, the, the sort of class issue I mentioned. There's not really an antagonist in Made in Manhattan. I guess Jennifer Lopez is her own antagonist, really. And, and the prop, the paparazzi, I guess. Like, it's just kind of a weird... The weird woman at the hotel who's obsessed with... Right. The, yeah, she's an antagonist. That's true. Although... <laughs> she has every right to be upset with Marissa's character. Later in the film goes on, Marissa's character tries on this hotel guest's clothes and ends up wearing these clothes out on the date, her first date with, an only date, <laughs> no, not her only date. That's true, <laughs> that is kind of a wall, but that's the only date it took. He only needed one date to fall in love. I think story-wise, there's, there's an element of believability that we spend the entire 
entire movie with Devine and Edward. Mm -hmm. We see every moment that they fall in love. Every scene has a purpose in Pretty Woman. Either it lets you know a little bit about our characters or how they are connecting. It moves everything along to the next scene. By the end of the movie, we totally believe that these people have been connecting over a week and it's so possible that they could have fallen in love. Whereas Made in Manhattan relies upon the trope of love at first sight. Yeah, and I like Ray Fiennes fine, but he just seemed like, maybe it was his uh, terrible American accent, but like, just like bland, just like so, I was like, I just, who could possibly be interested in this guy? I found him super bland. And then, but Richard Gere, who doesn't, as a character, say a lot really, but like, yeah, he's just very kind of charming in a weird way. There's a part of the script that I'd like to read from Pretty Woman. And Mm -hmm. it's a little bit what I was talking about at the beginning, how they move everything so quickly without a lot of dialogue. That happens a lot in the film where we're shown something versus being told it. There's a look, there's a glance, there's a gesture, and it's super telling where Main Manhattan just tells you. So with (laughs) Pretty Woman, this is in the beginning where we're getting to know Vivian's setup. We're inside her rented hotel room. We've just seen her get out of bed and she's going to work. So Vivian's hotel staircase, interior night. Close up on Vivian's leg going down the stairway. Then the camera moves backward and we see her in full. Another woman is going up the stairs. Hotel manager voiceover. Now, wait a minute. You don't seem to understand me. Vivian stops in mid-stairs. Hotel manager voiceover. That's my job. At the end of the month, I collect everybody's rent. Quick shot through the banister of the manager talking to an Afro-American woman. Back to Vivian still standing on the stairs. Hotel manager voiceover. Now give me the money or you're out of here. Vivian goes back up the stairs. Vivian and Kit's apartment, bathroom interior night close up on the water toilet tank and Vivian's hand taking the lid off. She then takes a green plastic box out of the water. She opens the box and looks at the money hidden inside the box. There is only $1 bill left. So Mm -hmm. much going on there. It took maybe 60 seconds of screen time and we know so much about Vivian's character and what yeah. and the dire straits that she's in as opposed to maybe Manhattan where we are beat over the head to let you know that Marissa's character lives in a poor neighborhood and they mm-hmm. don't have enough rent money. Yeah I'll, I just have to point out though that there's like these weird like amateur kind of things in the pretty woman script like it shouldn't be voiceover it should be off screen maybe maybe the the things have changed in whatever 30 years but i and also i've never in my life seen a script that wrote the lyrics of the song they wanted in the script did you see that what i gathered is that this might have been a version that was created after the movie came out Mm. Or there are, there are writers that are that specific. And I have, in certain scenes that I've done, written very specific musical cues. So if you don't want any mistranslation of your thoughts, why not write the music? No ambiguity. Right. And voiceover, you know, that's, I believe that's just a format choice. But remember, this was written in the, this was written in 1990 or maybe 1988, a few years before. Oh yeah, I mean, if it was shot in 89, came out in 90, I have to assume it was written 86, 87. Some people are not sticklers for format. If you can get your idea across, I know it's never been an issue for me. 
Now I'm just wondering if this, if that final script I read or we read was actually a transcript now that you mention it with, with just like poorly written. Cause I couldn't, maybe it was a shooting script. This, this is all irrelevant. Please continue. <laughs> so in, in contrast, also in the beginning of the film in Made in Manhattan, this, the author wants to get across some information to you the same way like they did for Vivian where she lives and how much money she has. This particular scene is the very beginning where Marissa's character and her son Ty are in a hurry trying to get Ty out to school and they're on the bus on the way to school. They have a conversation and I'll read it and then we can discuss. <laughs> Marissa, sat, Marissa and Ty sit on the city bus. Ty is worried about something. Ty, will I get in trouble if I didn't give my speech? Because I'm not really feeling it. Marissa, what do you mean you've been working all summer on that speech? I can't wait to hear it. Ty, it's boring. Marissa, not to me or to Abuela or to your dad. Ty, I thought we were meeting him after. Marissa, no way. He's coming and then you guys are going camping, remember? Ty, he's going to be late and then everyone will see. Marissa, <laughs> look, he knows what time it starts. Don't worry, he'll be there. Hey, look at me. Ty, what? Marissa, you got something on your face there. Ty, where? Marissa, right there. Marissa grabs his face and plants kisses all over it. Ty, mom, 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 no, stop. Marissa, <laughs> there it is. I got it. So they want us to know Ty doesn't want to give his speech. He's insecure, I guess. That maybe he's insecure. Maybe he has a fear of speaking. That he has an absentee father at this point in the story. We don't know if... Who is never mentioned again, by the way. We don't know if Marissa is, if this is somebody that she's married to yet, or if this is an ex-husband. We do get to know sure. on, but we're not quite sure what the dad's story is yet. But it's clear that he's not really in the picture and that it's a common thing that... And he's a real turd, this guy. I mean, he decides to go with his buddy, I guess, on a trip rather than see his kids speech yeah we, we get it like they make sure that there's no possibility of reconciliation between these two that there's no love loss that marissa does not want to be with ty's father and that ty's father is not a very present parent but some of yes. these some of these lines of dialogue are are a little rough for me when marissa <laughs> says that what do you what do you mean that you don't want to give your speech you've been working all summer on that speech i can't wait to hear it if he's been working on the summer all speech <laughs> heard it for one thing <laughs> uh, I don't know that it's important that he's been working on it all summer. And when he says that he's not really feeling it, you don't get the idea that he has stage fright. You're thinking, you're thinking that he's worried about his dad showing up. And then when she says, no way your dad's coming, you guys are going to go camping. Remember, if this kid doesn't get to spend much time with his dad, do you think he's going to forget that he's supposed to go camping with his dad that weekend? No, it's going to be the only thing he can think of. So with these, there's like some mixed messages happening and it's because of the stilted dialogue. Mm -hmm. I don't think we need all that to understand that she's a single mom and dad isn't around. In fact, that didn't have to be, we could have omitted dad from the picture completely. Mm -hmm. And it's still what we still would have gotten the idea that it's just Ty and Melissa and they have to rely on each other. You know, now that we're talking about it, the movie's really about Ty and Chris falling in love. 
structurally. Yes, I, I thought the same thing. They have the whole with the stupid paperclip business. And some of those moments are charming. You know, I want it. It's a romantic comedy. There's allowances for cheesy rom com stuff like that. Maybe falling in love in first sight. I like falling in love at first sight if after you fall in love at first sight, then you really fall in love. Mm-hmm. But it still has to feel earned. Yeah, like they went on a walk together. And he's just so smitten right away. And also the the film is implying, I mean, I guess it's implying that she would just be invisible in the maid outfit, but like, is he in love with her freaking $5,000 Dolce and Gabbana jacket or her? You know what I'm saying? Well, first of all, it's J-Lo. She's a well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, she's a beautiful woman. There's absolutely merit in the class segregation comment. They did set this up. She was initially in the bathroom when he first arrives at the hotel scene, at, at the hotel room, and she's cleaning the bathroom. They meet. Even though it's an embarrassing situation, he doesn't pay any attention to her. They want you to know that maids are invisible. It's part of the opening scenes where Marissa gets to the hotel. They're actually leading a new troop of maids for orientation. And it's stated that part of your job is to be invisible. And she feels mm. invisible most of the time. So that I thought was- That's a, very, a good point. That's a good that point. That's a very valid thing. And the only reason she's seen is because she changed her outer shell. I thought those were all valid points in the script. What seems odd is... Everything else? (laughs) Yes. I can understand there being a spark and they go for this little walk together. Now, we have just spent time learning what a devoted and attentive mother that Marissa is. And yet, as soon as Chris Chris Matheson gets around, she lets, Ty is gone at the park. He's walking this dog. She doesn't even know where he is. Then she goes off with a strange dog walker that she's never met before. She gets so flustered, she almost leaves her kid at the park. And during this whole time, they talk a little bit about Ty. Seems like a great fine character is just loving this kid. For whatever reason, this child is obsessed with Well, I guess later on they say it's the 70s, but he's like really into Richard Nixon, which is bizarre. Into 70s politics. That's cute. We had to we had to set that up that that's going to be the common link that gets Grapevine's character to meet Jennifer Lopez's character. But it does feel it just feels a little convoluted. I think they were. Oh, it's very convoluted. (laughs) I think they were looking for a way to get Chris to fall in love with the whole family. Sure. Because, yeah, like, she she gets in the clothes that she was supposed to be returning for Nastasia. I want to say Nastasia Hinstridge. <laughs> That's not the right name. <laughs> uh, Richardson. But anyway. Oh, well, that reminds me of another similarity. Both Chris and Edward recently broke up with supermodel girlfriends. Because it's very important to establish that these women that they're falling in love with, it's not about their looks. Even though they are beautiful. They could have a, super, or a supermodel. They choose not to. Our our leading men are not shallow. They're actually, our leading men are very likable characters, which is nice, especially after the rewrite in Pretty Woman. Yes, they have to be broken up with immediately, like the same afternoon or a day later. I definitely get that we have to know that they're not in a relationship. They also are- They're not not cheating. cheating, yeah. There is that trope that if you are somebody that has people surrounding you that always tell you yes, you are drawn to the one person that tells you no. You're looking for some kind of authenticity and Mm -hmm. they definitely feel like they have that in these women. And, And in Made in Manhattan, where does he get that authenticity from? 
Ty because he's the one that he connects with uh, over the the your your um, your voting record has been been great, you know, but you you lack this and that, and so he's the one that's getting actual feedback. I'm telling you, Main Manhattan is about the love between the politician and, and a child. Well, he needs a dad. <laughs> yes, a father figure. That's what I meant. <laughs> Are you saying that this was cleverly uh, cleverly blanketed pedophilia story? <laughs> Possibly. What is this movie really saying? Well, I do have to say just positives about Made Manhattan. I thought the entire supporting cast was delightful, really. Like all of the, the other maids and the, the main supporting maid, only movie she's ever been in. I was, I was shocked. Oh, really? Yeah, she's done like TV and stuff. The, the other two um, less talkative but supporting maids, like, like really good, like in sort of a, a theater way. Like they seem like stage actors and not in a bad way, but just that sort of very expressive and it worked for that film. And like I said, uh, Bob Hoskins was, was very enjoyable as that character. I thought they both had stellar casts. They're mm -hmm. very, very equal footing in that regard. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Like, I, I mean, Chris Mitchell or the, the Ray Fiennes character was not written to, to say much. So maybe it's not entirely his fault, but everyone is categorically good. <laughs> Everyone's trying to, to elevate what they're given. And I think that Maid struggled a little bit with with the politics, really. They it was a very get, odd choice. They wanted to get across so many things. They had, it switches its focus a lot. It has its focus on Ty and Marissa, and then there's a focus on Marissa's career advancement. There's a portion of the film that's focused on the, the strained relationship with her mother and what her mother's expectations are of her in relation to what her own expect expectations are of herself. It goes in then also with a little bit with this love interest. And then she also has a relationship with her nemesis, the Natasha Richardson's character, she's got that relationship going on. Then she's got a relationship, you know, with all of the maids in the hotel, the security people, the seamstress. There's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, and unlike a Pretty Woman, which really kind of leans into the, the class differences and how upper society views lower quote unquote people, that's in Made Manhattan, but it's nowhere near as explicit. Like you don't get that sort of revenge shopping scene in Made in Manhattan. You just get like, oh, you wouldn't have noticed me if I was a maid. Well, they had two uh, shopping or two uh, montage sequences revolving around the girls getting ready and trying to find clothes to go out on a fancy date. I found mm. one very confusing and one very clear. I wasn't <laughs> sure in Made in Manhattan if they were where they were. I think they were supposed to be in the gift shop of the hotel. But I wasn't quite clear on what was happening there. And it didn't really move the story forward where I felt like in Pretty Woman it did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think at least the impression I got, because I was confused too, it seemed like kind of a more old school idea where there's like a department store, like on different, like maybe in the, the lobby or something, or maybe it's just right next door. But yeah, I got the impression it was nearby, if not in the same building, then like literally next door. Because yeah, Natasha Richardson's telling her like, oh, go get these clothes. Oh, please take them back. I don't like them. Oh, go get them again. Gee whiz. I mean, she can't be driving around. She's a maid. Every... Maids don't drive around. Yeah, exactly. There's dry cleaning at the hotel. But they also- Well, in fact, she- 
She even says that's not my job. She's just a nice person. They also got conflicting messages because in Pretty Woman, Richard Gere is obviously a very valued guest at the hotel and can borrow things from the jewelry shop or the dress shop at his disposal. Whereas they made it clear in an earlier scene in Made in Manhattan, Marissa's character, even though she worked at the hotel, couldn't get anything. So when her friends say, baby, it's not what you have, it's who you know. She knows all these other maids. And I wasn't sure where she got the money to go shopping for this beautiful dress. And I couldn't tell if her friends brought her clothes (laughs) or if she was at a store, if they were in the gift shop, then she has like this, you know, billion dollar necklace that one, that somebody gives to Ty to take to her. I thought, well, that is a really good point. That's not something I even thought of at the time, but you're totally right. It was just super strange because they had built, Marissa had relationships on the lower level, not necessarily on the higher level. Only a few people knew her secret. And why would somebody give her, you know, a million dollar necklace if they don't even know why she's using it? It's very Because at the event that she goes to, to break things off with Chris Mitchell, whatever his name is, she is radiant. Like, she is like... A angel coming into this party. It's just ridiculous. Well, I mean, she had to be. And in a rom-com Of course, that's moment, the point of the movie. I, I want that in my rom-com. I want mm-hmm. that woman who I am living vicariously through. I want her to shine because, you know, I'm a chick. In my mind, I'm like, that's right. I could shine like that if I walked into... You just want some halo lighting. <laughs> and, you know, the color scheme and the lighting to, to showcase her... She has to be. She's the she's the love interest. It was interesting that her character has such strong morals all throughout the film. She's battling with lying by omission. It seemed a little bit against character for her to go to the party and not break up with him, but not only not break up with him instead of telling him the truth to have sex with him. Yeah, it seems like there was ample opportunity really for her to just say, hey, look, this has been, I mean, I still want to, I'm still interested in you. Like we should you know, there's no reason why we can't still keep dating, but you should know my name's actually Marissa. He already knows he's got a kid. That's not a mystery. The <laughs> hardest part's already done. What I did not like was at the end, they tried to make the hotel staff seem like they were the bad guys when... I thought that was a little strange because Marissa made these choices. She took these clothes from Natasha's Richardson's character without permission. That is definitely illegal. She had borrowed things from the gift shop without permission. She was in the wrong and she lied to her love interest, Chris. They tried to make the audience feel like the hotel management and even Natasha Richardson character was in the wrong for making because they didn't they didn't action. have any conflict. Which they needed to like manufacture this conflict. The whole movie, they've been supportive and they were still supportive in that moment. She had no one to blame but herself. Yes, because she, there's a a manager position open at the hotel. She kind of wants to apply, but then like she doesn't, but her friend applies for her and she gets the job. And like you said, everyone is very supportive. Like there was really no other choice. You've got the job. Everything is a formality at this point. And then, yeah, they find out that she had borrowed these clothes and was going out with uh, the the senator guy. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, we just were so disappointed in you. And, and this you're, you're fired and the job's not yours anymore. It did seem very drastic. I understand to a degree, but considering they have like a relationship, like you said, with all these people, that, that the truth could have been like, 
she could have explained here's what happened and especially since the senator was fine with it at this point we weren't sure that the senator was fine with it at that point i guess that's true at the same time but he was more concerned he didn't seem angry he was more like what's going on you know like tell me what's the truth or whatever so at least in that sense ray fines sold me that his goal was jennifer lopez however i do have to say if his goal was jennifer lopez and this is just a it's a plot hole i i think could have been stitched up a little bit better where we find out that marissa's character is the maid and there's been this misunderstanding because she's lied so it's not really a misunderstanding and chris matheson's character and marissa have it out in the streets very publicly she owns up to everything she did walks away and then chris just hightails it out of town he hightails it out of town for three months they have no contact for three months and then three months later ty's like hey i think chris is in town we've talked about this over and over again (laughs) what so the only reason chris's character goes after marissa is because of ty he Mm -hmm. comes back into town he's giving a press conference he's not going to go after marissa not the love of his life that he fell in love with after one afternoon no ty has to come in i don't know how he got in the press room and got to the front of the line that paperclip he was holding wields a lot of power but he finally gets to give his speech at least they paid that off and i loved that they set up the whole paperclip thing they set up his fear of speaking and they paid that off in the end but i'm saying that's the only thing that they really like that's the story of the film the the paperclip and because other than yeah their relationship works out i guess there's no difference in their lives except for the fact that he can now go to do public speaking I'd be, you know, if I was Marissa, I'd be a little butthurt. I'd be kind of offended that three months later, it wasn't even your idea to come get me. My kid had to guilt you into coming correct. Yeah, well, that's the thing is like, it wasn't, not only was it not Chris's choice, it wasn't Marissa's choice either. The two lead characters did not make any proactive decision in culminating this. <laughs> and everything, all the inciting incident was uh, started by Ty. Uh, the, the major plot point was with Ty. And the ending was with Ty. I'm telling you. <laughs> I, you're right. You are right. I, I think that we need to report this film to somebody. I'm not sure who. <laughs> and isn't it funny that the, the other one, Pretty Woman, seems so much more wholesome in comparison? Oh yeah, this sounds a little, I mean... Uh, Julia Roberts' character didn't do anything immoral. Well, well. If if you were, if you were. Aside from the whole fact that she's a prostitute. If you were casting judgment upon her choice to sell her body, that (laughs) is perceived, can be perceived as immoral. But in her, in her realm, even she wasn't comfortable with it. But Vivian's character was doing something illegal. But when in her relationship with Edward, nothing Mm. was dishonest there. They built Correct. a solid relationship. Yeah. She even tells her his, him, his real name, her real name. Yes, from the very beginning. And every little step of the way, there's more and more revealed about... That's really interesting, actually. They're both very honest with each other in Pretty Woman. That breeds trust. Yeah, whereas in, in Made Manhattan, it's a lot of lying by omission, but it's all based on dishonesty. They also are, you know, they're being intimate. And you can't deny that connection is reinforced when you're sharing bodily fluids with somebody. For sure. 
But they also made all the sex scenes in Pretty Women are tender and loving. Like you get the idea that they are lovemaking and not just having sex. You get the idea that somehow this is meaningful and it's not without, like it's happened in this lifetime of ours that lonely businessmen pay for company. There are men that pay for just to have a woman sit there and talk to them, not even have sex. So the idea of this isn't something that's unbelievable, where even though Made in Manhattan was based on a true story seems less believable with the way they've set it up. Mm -hmm. Although I do have to point out that I thought it was funny when Vivian gets to the hotel at the beginning, like everyone's like sort of gawking at her uh, wardrobe and the idea that what she was wearing would seem I don't know, out of place in 1989, 1990 Los Angeles, I thought was hilarious because she's not, I mean, like, yes, it's a little saucy. I mean, like, it's not that where who, I want to know where you're hanging out. <laughs> well, if you look, if, if you watch any heavy metal music video from the 80s, that's what women were wearing. But not in like a Four Seasons hotel. All right, I guess that's true. She was looking pretty skanky for high society crowd. But what if, well, I guess the rich rockers probably would have stayed at a different hotel. Or the rich, rich rockers would have come in with their entourage of babes already dressed like that. And everybody would know that those babes belong with those rockers. Yep. It's like, that's David Lee Roth. I understand. Got it. Yeah. I'm still, I'm very bent out at the, at the ending of Made in Manhattan for sure. I just felt bad for Marissa, I guess. In Pretty Woman, at the end, when you have to make a choice, Edward, it takes him one day. And then it's not easy on him. Not only does he have to decide on his own volition that he's going to go after the woman that he's fallen in love with, he has to conquer his fear of heights. He has to drive over to where she is and climb up that, I'm sure, dirty and diseased fire escape ladder when he's terrified of heights to bring her a bouquet of flowers and express his love for her. That's of course what every woman would want. Not like. That's, <laughs> I, that was totally lost on me. Now that you mention it. Yeah. I remember him mentioning his, how many times have you seen pretty woman? I saw it back when it came out and then I just saw it this last weekend. I think I may, I, maybe I have seen it somewhere in between over the years, like pieces, but I haven't. So not a, a ton. It in his entirety until this last week. But that is true. He has a fear of high. I wish maybe that it had, and maybe if I go back and watch it, it's more apparent than I recall, but uh, yeah. They mentioned it several times. What I appreciated, even though Made in Manhattan set up things that they paid off, Pretty Woman, I think, just did a little more elegantly. Mm -hmm. They casually set up some of these pieces of information, like Edward being afraid of heights. He's in the penthouse suite. It comes up organically in conversation. Mm -hmm. I will also say that both movies did make me laugh. There were funny lines in Made in Manhattan. You know, I, I, have to say, like, I, I had never seen Made in Manhattan before. I'd never read the script before. I still wanted at the end for them to get together and make this work. And I don't know if that's just my genetic Because we don't... <laughs> We don't know. I mean, where where are we actually left at the end of Made Manhattan? I know they're at the press conference and they meet each other. We don't know what they decide to do after that, oh, right? Actually, we do. You probably tapped out as soon as you possibly could. Maybe. <laughs> but after after they fade to black, then they give you a little um, a little recap of where everybody is a year later. What? Yes. So Chris and How did I miss this? Chris and Marissa are still together. Marissa has her own business. Oh, that's right. 
Yes, continue. Oh, I can't remember. They had um, they had a few other little updates on people. Oh, the Poodle Sisters got arrested. That was not <laughs> needed in the story at all. That was very- well, because they were yeah, they were mean. They were stealing toiletries and what have you. That's one thing that Made Manhattan has over Pretty Woman is it's nice idea the fantasy if we get to imagine what the happy ending looks like. But this one, they're kind of assuring us because they only spent two days together that <laughs> this is going to work out. <laughs> Yeah, like that's the other thing. It's just it's ha- it happens so quickly because it has to in the script for Made Manhattan. But Pretty Woman does give it time to... Because look, it's a Disney film, yeah, but they do have sex in the movie. It's, it's not explicit. I mean, certainly not like the, the porn scenes in the second version of the script. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it does make sense why he would keep her around, even though they don't really lean on it too hard. Ray Fine's character and Jennifer Lopez's character do have sex on their second date. So they do have that one night of intimacy. But I felt like this the storytellers, the authors here, decided to spend a lot of time other places besides their relationship. And I found that a very odd choice for a romantic comedy, since the most important thing about a romantic comedy is the relationship. It makes me wonder if uh, John Hughes got the story credit by just saying, uh, hey, uh, you should write a, a romantic comedy about that Rockefeller story. <laughs> because the actual writing, like I said, there's some funny lines, but structurally, good God, it's it all over the place. It is not indicative of, of the writing we've seen from John Hughes. And no. it's interesting because we just recently had watched You and I, Duel and Joyride, And the similarities that I can see here, Duel had one author, Joyride had two. Pretty Woman had one author, Made in Manhattan had two. I can't help but wonder if those two voices were just not in harmony and eventually one had to win out over the other. I am not good. I would never, shouldn't say never, but I prefer to write alone. I don't like having somebody to sort of compromise or argue my position. I like to get notes. But yeah, I would find it really difficult to write something. Most writers are that way. I absolutely prefer to write solo. There's, I actually have one writing partner that we work well together. But most people, I'm like, mm, just want to do my own. I'm too much. Yeah, I'm a, too much of a control freak. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Your idea is terrible. It is. The other person's idea is always terrible, and yours is always great. Mm-hmm. I don't know why it always works out that way. Well, let's see. We had our opinions about mm-hmm. this. But what were, what was the audience reception at this time? Looks like Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman had a budget of $14 million. Pretty good. And Julia Roberts was, she'd only done a handful of films at this point. So, I mean, like, even though Richard Gere was pretty big, I think she was relatively new, right? I think she had just really come out in the public as a favorite, as a darling after Steel Magnolias. But this is the thing that just shot her into a lot of success that she is today, for sure. Her her appeal is undenying here. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see, on Rotten Tomatoes, the film got... 64%. That seems low to me. Based on 69 reviews. I don't know if that means anything. It's it's low. I consider Pretty Woman to be a fairly well thought of film. Critics' consensus states that Pretty Woman may have a yuppie fantasy, but the film's slick comedy soundtrack and casting can overcome misgivings. I think that's fair. That sounds accurate to me. But you know what? There's If that's the critics' response, the numbers don't lie. Pretty Woman was a hit with the public. It was number one at the box office for four consecutive weeks and in the top 10 for 16 weeks. 
So most mm-hmm. audience scores were like an A or an A plus. Yeah, I always thought like growing up, if I ever asked a girl what her favorite movie was, it was one of three things. It was Pretty Woman, Top Gun, or Dirty Dancing. No, those are three great films. Yeah. I've never seen Dirty Dancing either. Oh. Throwing it out there. Now I'm going to make you watch it. (laughs) Oh, no. Wait, have you seen The Princess Bride? Of course, yes. Oh, okay. All right. (laughs) Not so out of touch then. No, no, no. One of my top five. That's fair. See, Made in Manhattan, budget $55 million. That is astounding to me. You'd think they would have been reversed, those two budgets. You would. with Well, we are talking a lot of star power. Sure. Ray Fiennes is no hack. And J-Lo is, at this point, she was already a triple threat. She's actress, singer, dancer. She commands a pretty dollar. They also Mm -hmm. had, I think, fancier sets, more expensive sets, uh, filming on location in the park and in the hotel. I can't imagine that location cost would have been more than what we saw in Pretty Woman. We had more locations, I think. Well, and also Gary Marshall is a very well-respected director. So I'm sure like he was probably expensive. I don't know how much these people asked for. I think maybe they saved money on a lesser known director for Made in Manhattan. Correct. Wayne Wang's, most of his work, um, more popular in Asia. And the the movie I was trying to think of was Chan is Missing, just so I have it correct. Ah, I saw that on his film index. Mm -hmm. He's actually directed more films than Gary Marshall, but most of his works are just known in Asia and not in the States. Most people Mm -hmm. here would know him for the Joy Luck Club, which is very, very popular. Yes, yes. Let's see. Rotten Tomatoes, what did you say about Made? It had a 39% (laughs) rating on 150 reviews. And I like that there were more people that wanted to complain about Made in Manhattan. Squeaky uh, wheel gets the grease for sure. (laughs) The website's consensus says, too blandly generic, Made in Manhattan also suffers from a lack of chemistry between Lopez and Fines. Accurate. Um, I thought the most telling review was Fines himself, who admitted that he regretted making <laughs> That is a bold thing to say, because that's a, that's, that's a public statement. You've worked with a lot of people on that film. It's a little, little slap in the face. But I guess if you're Ray Fines, you can do that. There's just nothing for him to do in that movie. Like, all he does is, for no reason, fall in love with that woman. I could see, I mean... It, who knows why he decided to do it in the first place. But yeah, the script, I would just think, is just nothing for him to do. Yeah, it would. maybe he was under contractual obligation for a set of films. To, or maybe he thought he needed something in, different in his in his resume, in his body of work. Maybe, maybe he, you know, an American know, film? Comedic leading man. I did find him very charming. He can be... Oh, that was what I wanted to ask you. So I guess I already know your answer, but who is the more attractive fellow, Richard Gere or Ray Fiennes? They're very, very different. To be honest, if I met them both in real life, their characters, I probably wouldn't be attracted to Richard Gere. He seems unsafe. How many times in the movie did they make sure that they reference he has a flavor of the month, that he goes through women like he goes through toilet paper? That's not super sexy. Where mm-hmm. Ray Fine seems to have girlfriends for a longer period of time. He seems genuinely ethical in his quest in politics, which is rare. So I would think that he is safer and thus more attractive. Makes sense. What about you? If you met Julia Roberts or <laughs> Jennifer Lopez? Well, oh, I meant strictly the actors, not necessarily their, because their, if I meet their characters, I really only have one choice, I, I'm afraid. 
However, just strictly on, I mean, they're both very attractive. I don't know. It's kind of a toss up. I love watching Jennifer Lopez. She's, she's so likable. She's got a great screen presence. She's, I didn't think that she was super believable in this. I've liked her in things and maybe it was like, she got dialogue late, you know, who knows? Just some of the readings were kind of, I think part of the suffering is that I didn't believe, except for the concierge, I really didn't believe anybody in this film in the parts that they had. The maid, well, the cast of maids, I could totally believe that. They felt more authentic. But yeah, I, I felt each one of these characters was a little unbelievable. Yeah, and there were too many anyway. Like she had three maid buddies. Natasha Richardson had her own friend, Amy Sedaris, who was very funny. Yeah, there's just so many characters, too many to keep up with. Then get in the Poodle Sisters, then introduce us to other people. The Poodle Sisters, yes. What about all the politicians? Let's know, we have to know the name of the dog. We have to know the assistant's (laughs) name is Jerry. We have to know some other guy named Dan. Yes, by the way, Stanley Tucci's character, I have to imagine it was on purpose, is named after one of the creators of Superman. Oh, I did not know this. Just an odd thing I I noticed. Anyway, Stanley Tucci, also very likable actor. Totally. Jason Alexander, not likable, which is the perfect cast. I know. I didn't know he was in the movie and he was playing such against type and still nailing it, you know? He did it fantastic. Like, you hate it. He actually has stated in interviews that that character stays with people throughout his career. If he was walking down the street, there are women that will come up and just start yelling at him for him trying to rape Julia Roberts. They, it's, it's a little... <laughs> well, but... That good of a job. Totally. And speaking of uh, them setting up things really well in Pretty Woman, again, I didn't really notice it the first time I watched it, but the second time they set up that he's got a thing for redheads because his wife is a redhead. He's flirting with a redhead at that party in front of his wife at the beginning of the film. And then at that polo tournament, well, Julie Roberts is a redhead. It's super savvy, right? But these are, and nobody says, hey, I have a thing for redheads. You just get it. You get clued in non-verbally, which is really strong, thoughtful writing. I agree. And then he went on to do Under Siege with Steven Seagal, of all people. Although I got to say, Under Siege was a very popular film. I cannot remember seeing it, even though I know that I did. Maybe that's It introduced us to Katherine Heigl. I can't get excited about that. I know, I know. Well, for, for me, I, I enjoyed watching both of these movies. I, I enjoy a good rom-com because I know I'm going to get a happy ending. And I always like that feel good at the end of the day. Something I can watch with my daughter, at least made in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. But I felt like a little bit like when we talked about Jewel and Joyride, Joyride had two authors and I felt like too many, there were too many storylines. They were trying to tell too many stories and then it kind of lost the shine off the main story. I felt a little bit like this as well. They tried to tell so many stories and none of these stories would have been bad. They just might've been better as a separate movie. Like Jayla would have been a great and a dramatic movie about being a single mom. And then the conflict with her mother, if you're talking about the Latin culture and expectations and stereotypes passed down from generations. And trying to make her way up at the hotel. That would be a really strong drama. I'm not sure it fit in this story when we wanted to really spend more time with the characters that are falling in love. We didn't really know too much about them and what they want. Wait, did Marissa's character want love? She never said. She wanted a career. Yeah, yeah. She never mentioned it. I mean, especially since she had that terrible relationship, obviously, with 
Ty's father. It didn't seem like something she was looking for. I guess the idea is that fate thrust it upon her. Yeah, maybe she didn't know she wanted love. Usually they it's something that your main character wants, and so then you as the audience want it for them. It's a good point, too. Yeah, she never explicitly states that. No. But then she never says that she wants the job, even though she wants the job. Well, that was implied by her. Well, it was, it was. Very loudly by her mage staff friends. We all knew that she really wanted that. And again, in a different movie, her struggle with self-confidence as, you know, a woman of ethnicity from a lower income neighborhood, she had so many self-doubts. That's a wonderful, that, that breeding ground for story is really wonderful. It just felt a little bit out of place here. Yeah, well, just, I mean, there were so many threads and, and none were especially developed that it was difficult to care about any particular thing in Made Manhattan. I got through it by kind of just enjoying some of the performances and kind of wondering how they were going to resolve everything, but there was nothing inherent about the story or the plot that was driving my interest forward other than how are they going to wrap this all up. <laughs> in this round, I give it to Pretty Woman. It goes down, no, no pun intended, it goes down really easy. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it and it just flew by where I felt I was looking at the clock when I was watching Made in Manhattan and that's never a good sign. Mm -hmm. I agree. I enjoyed uh, Pretty Woman quite a bit more than I was expecting to. I think it's really hard to do a movie where you're the pros a prostitute is your main character. Um, I can think of Angel otherwise off the top of my head. But yeah, surprisingly, Pretty Woman is really enjoyable. I understand sort of Julia Roberts' origin story a little better now because you know the stuff I've seen her in, she's definitely good, but not like I don't know. Like I feel like the if. She was the same age now as she was in Pretty Woman. She'd even make a good Harley Quinn. Do you know Harley Quinn? Oh, come on. Just making sure. I but know, she I had that kind of personality. The last several years, I've been on a streak of Batman villains for Halloween. So nice. Like year I was the Riddler. Year before that, I was Joker. Year before that, I was Harley Quinn, but Arkham Dark Knight, Harley Quinn, not Suicide Squad, Harley Quinn. Wow, you found a... I, uh, I might be Penguin next year. I refuse to be Poison Ivy. It's so overdone. That's fair. Well, luckily, Batman has a plethora of villains. To choose oh my from. gosh, probably one of the greatest cast of villains in all comic book history. He is my favorite comic book character. I'll just put that out there. Uh, we'll have to, we'll see, we can start a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's our show for today. Do you do you have anything to plug? Do we want to check you out on Too Fast, Too Furious? Maybe that that one might be over, unfortunately. Well, episodes people who haven't heard it before tune in. Yeah, you can still check it out. Uh, to, uh, so fast, so furious, where we watch uh, the Fast and Furious films uh, fifteen minutes at a time. It's pretty entertaining <laughs> if you're into that sort of thing. I love um, it. That's a great idea. And check out my um, YouTube channel, Metal School, about my 80s heavy metal documentary obsession. I like that you're so versatile. Well, that's what um, COVID does <laughs> when you have nowhere else to go or nothing to do. You suddenly get very creative. <laughs> if anyone is interested, you can check out a brand new series on Apple TV called Stillwater. Season one is out. And in May, be on the lookout for a show called Housebroken to premiere after Bob's Burgers on Fox. Those That's are shows, a good show to premiere shows after. I directed this past year. Nice. <laughs> well, if it's as funny as Bob's Burgers, I'm in. I can't promise that, but we can try. At least mm -hmm. I have a good lead in. 
Yes, exactly. Now, I think it's really hysterical. It'll be interesting to see what Rotten Tomatoes has to say about my show. I know, right? <laughs> you get my thin, my skin really thick right now. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think I think it's fair to say that Pretty Woman was a, a knockout winner in this particular matchup. It was just worth it to make you watch that movie finally. Yeah, I'm glad I, I can mark it off my list. Now, if there's a, we do a, a Dirty Dancing versus Havana Nights. <laughs> episode. Don't tempt me. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Have a great night. Bye. Sound effects courtesy of the Soundly app. Go to get for your complete sound effect platform. Intro and outro music for this episode is District 4 by Kevin McLeod. Hear more like this on Incompetech.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us a review if you feel like it. Shoot us an email at filmfightpodcast at gmail.com if there's a matchup you'd like to see. And that's it for this week. Catch us next time for another episode of the Film Fight Podcast.